0: From the Miriam Institute, this is the Israel Defense and Diplomacy Forum podcast.
1: Podcast. 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 Hello, and welcome to the Israel Defense and Diplomacy Forum podcast, or IDDF, as we like to call it, a product of the Miriam Institute. Israel's future in Israel's hands. hot button issues emanating from the State of Israel to analyze and debate Israel's policy, political, security, and diplomatic considerations on matters of domestic and global importance from a distinctly Israeli vantage point. And in this show, they'll present you with their comment and critique of decisions and events from Israel for your consideration. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show if you haven't already done so, and to leave a review at wherever it is you download your podcasts from. We are here to talk about Swords of Iron, Israel's war against Hamas. Just to introduce the co-panelists, I'll be joined by Professor Chuck Freilich. He's a former deputy national security advisor in the state of Israel. He's also a professor at Columbia University and Tel Aviv University. And we also have the pleasure of having Yaakov Lap in the in-house analyst here at the Miriam Institute. I'm here in Tel Aviv. Chap is in New York. Yaakov is in London. And we're going to go around the houses to talk a little bit about what's going on here, which obviously requires a long and protracted and detailed and quite frankly, a candid conversation. But I wanted to begin by giving a very brief recap to everybody with regard to the context out of which we find ourselves convened today. On Shabbat morning, Saturday, October the 7th, Hamas launched the most brutal, bloody, depraved rampage of murder against the Jewish people since the events of the Holocaust. 1,300 members of Israeli society were murdered, including men, women, children. Whole families have been eliminated as a consequence of the atrocities launched by Hamas terrorists, specifically around the area surrounding the Gaza Strip, here inside the borders of the State of Israel. As though that was not enough, more than 200 Israelis have been kidnapped and are being held for ransom inside the Gaza Strip, many of them with dual nationality, and I believe within their number are individuals who were migrant workers here in the State of Israel as well, cynically being held for ransom by Hamas. As a result of that, the Israel Defense Forces is carrying out aerial sorties almost without pause over the Gaza Strip, targeting specific areas and strongholds within the Gaza Strip, and also targeting leaders of the Hamas terrorist organization. Beyond that, more than 320,000 members of the Israel Defense Forces have been drafted and are massed on our borders, including in the south and very much including in the north where I have just returned from together with my colleague Rosita Panini as we handed out and distributed equipment to one of the reserve paratroops units at there in readiness for the event that anything should break out on the north. We are already in the midst of a conflict, a low level but rising conflict with Hezbollah in my opinion and my assessment. And I was appalled to hear and shocked to hear that that particular unit of the paratroops up there on the border with Lebanon does not have any ceramic vests at this time. It does not have any ceramic vests. They've been told to prepare to go into combat with nothing more than the Shakhpats. The Shakhpats is a garment it is a piece of equipment that is worn across the torso of a combat soldier and specifically designed to defend against shrapnel but it is not bulletproof by any means in addition to what we have seen taking place by way of this mass mobilization the streets here in the states of Israel have fallen almost silent consider our total population and then consider that most many many men of working age have been taken and drafted. I have not been drafted on this occasion. This is the first war in which I find myself too old to be drafted. But I may be remedying that situation in the coming days. We will see what takes place. I also want to say, before I turn it over to Chuck and to Yakov, that your questions are welcomed. If you do type your questions into the interface at the base of this Zoom webinar, we will try to get to those before the end of the program. And I also want to tell you that the reason that I'm here in more casual attire than is typical is that I have literally, literally just returned from being all the way up north with that paratroop unit. I also want to say that the State of Israel is not only reeling from the atrocities that took place, but it is also in the midst of high anxiety and concern and worry about what may take place in the event that Hezbollah decides to enter into this war in full force, thereby opening up a second front to our north. A second front that is equipped with far greater firepower than anything Hamas has. A second front that is far better trained than anything Hamas has. And a second front that really would be a message directly, most directly, much more directly from Iran, that they see this as a moment, perhaps, perhaps, to seek to bring about, the very destruction of the state of Israel. And I mentioned that not because I think the state of Israel will be destroyed. I mention it because I believe we find ourselves in a moment where our enemies are examining whether or not now is the moment for them to attempt to bring that about. I also want to say, and this is the last point I will make, that our soldiers, our soldiers, our young men, our young women, they are demonstrating uncommon courage and common resolve and common discipline and common confidence in the righteousness of any mission that is placed upon their shoulders. They are apt to carrying the weight of that mission. But even as I say that, I must as well be open with you and concede and report that confidence in the defence establishment at its higher levels is in ruins. It is currently in tatters. There are leading members of the defense establishment who are coming forward and expressing that they failed. They failed, completely failed to prevent the atrocity that took place on October the 7th. Such individuals include the current head of the Shin Bet, Ronan Baal. They include the current head of IDF Intelligence, Aaron Khaliva. And they include the chief of the general staff, hiltzi Halevi. Just today, the Minister of Defence, Yoav Gallant, somebody who had repeatedly warned that the divisions being sown during the ongoing demonstrations and counter-demonstrations and debate and discord that surrounded the judicial reform, he had repeatedly warned that that was all resulting in a compromised, even dangerous security situation for the State of Israel. And despite those warnings, Yoav Gallant has come forward and said, that he accepts responsibility for this failure as well. One individual who has not come forward and accepted responsibility is Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And I will begin by saying that though everybody is of the opinion, just about everybody I hear and speak to, that such recrimination should be left until the day after the war, I do want to be on record as saying that I disagree with that view. I think that everybody atop the security establishment and the political establishment needs to be called out for what they are part of, which is the most blatant, shameful, disgraceful failure of security here in the state of Israel, at least since the Yom Kippur War, something that unfortunately supersedes what took place even during the Yom Kippur War. And I personally believe that many individuals atop the security establishment should be shunted aside now immediately and replaced with more capable individuals than are currently in situ. That's my view. That's a brief recap of what has taken place here thus far. And I'm actually going to turn it to you, Yakov, first of all, to pick up not necessarily on the points that I've made, though you should feel free to do so, but perhaps you can talk us through some of the targeted eliminations of Hamas leaders that have taken place thus far, the impact of those, and perhaps give us a military analysis of where you see things at the moment. And then, Chuck, I'd like to come back to you to talk about the visit of President Joe Biden that we just saw take place yesterday and the visit of Britain's Rishi Sunak that took place today. Jakob, it's over to you.
2: Well, we're seeing the Israeli Air Force currently uh, leading the uh, Israeli response to uh, this unprecedented atrocity. What we're seeing is um, really the Israeli Air Force attacking every single Hamas target that is in the bank of targets that it has assembled uh, over the years. There is no distinguishment, correctly so, I would say, being made between Hamas's political regime and the terrorist army, the military wing. Everybody who has been identified as being affiliated with Hamas and an available target is being eliminated. And we're seeing a growing number of uh, senior uh, commanders of Hamas, uh, mid-ranking commanders, and um, members of the Nukhba elite force, which took part and led uh, this mass murder assault on October 7th. All of them are being targeted, as well as a growing number. I believe the number is four right now. Out of approximately twelve or thirteen members of the uh, political bureau, and really the distinguishment is quite shallow. Even though Hamas was a both still is a political regime and 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 a terrorist army at the same time, they worked hand in hand, and and all of them are absolutely responsible uh, for this unprecedented uh, crime against humanity. So. Um, what we're seeing is a systematic um, but rather slow elimination of these people because most of them are in bunkers and in tunnels and in the middle of um, you know buildings uh, and they absolutely had the element of surprise so that gave them the operational advantage and that is why this ground offensive is going to be necessary um, if the military is going to achieve the objective set to it by the war cabinet uh, which is the destruction of the uh, Hamas uh, military and political uh, um, entities, both of them, only a ground operation will be able to do that gradually, slowly. I think it's going to take months. Um, This is urban warfare. It's intense uh, door-to-door, bunker-to-bunker, street-to-street, and and, uh, large numbers of ground forces will have to go in and complete what the Air Force has begun. And I think we're on the verge of that. We're on the cusp of that, going into the next stage. I think we're at the end of the beginning of this war, and we're about to shift into the intermediate phase uh, of this war against Hamas.
1: Thank you very much, Yaakov. Chuck, I want to come to you, and obviously we're going to back and forth and volley and discuss this as we go through today's webinar. But I want to come to you to take from where Yaakov left off. We've seen the ground forces massing on the borders now, on our side of the borders here in Israel. I have never seen anything that compares to the scale of this mobilization. During our drive up north and then back to the Melkaz, to the central part of Israel where I am right now, entire parking lots, acres are taken over by the cars of Miluimnikim, of reservists who are there, who have driven to their bases, and then... As though that's not enough for those who are visiting them to give them care packages and to give them whatever meals, equipment, moral support they're able to to give. so there's a question here. three hundred and twenty thousand have been masked. We have faced this atrocity in on October the seventh, and now now, we are in a waiting game, it seems. We seem to be in a holding pattern. Talk to us about why that wait is taking place from a strategic point of view, not about having the soldiers receive their equipment or not. Talk to us about why we might be waiting in your assessment as a former deputy national security advisor, specifically in the context of the visits by these senior level heads of state, Joe Biden, Chancellor Schultz, Rishi Sunak. Where are we, Chuck? I hope you're enjoying this episode of the IDDF podcast, a product of the Miriam Institute. Please send your comments and questions via email address iddf at Institute.org. a selection of which will be read out on air. Finally please be sure to visit the Miriam Institute website at www.miriaminstitute.org where you can learn more about our collaborations with the U.S. military academies, the U.S. Army, and our campus work throughout the English-speaking world. You can also read our written commentary and analysis penned by top-tier experts, which we're proud to provide to you for free. And you can also find out how to invest in the work of the Miriam Institute.
0: Well, I think, as Jakob said, we are at the end of the beginning, but uh, there's still going to be a long time before this is over. The IDF screwed up big time. There's no doubt about this. It was a colossal intelligence failure, a colossal operational failure. And to its credit, I think the IDF has rebounded very quickly, recovered from the initial failures and is preparing itself for the ground invasion. Now, there's been a lot of talk in recent days, there's a lot of speculation in the press around the world, a lot of warnings, actually intention warnings uh, to Israel to avoid getting bogged down in a protracted war like the US did in Iraq and Afghanistan, especially the dangers of urban warfare And of course, the really big danger here is that we may be heading into exactly what Hamas and Hezbollah want us to do, which is a major ground operation. And then from their point of view, hopefully we would get bogged down. At least much of the IDF is uh, tied down to the southern front. And in those circumstances, it it might be exactly the time that Hezbollah decides to join the fray and maybe Iran and it becomes a regional war. They missed their initial opportunity to join the first day when we were in disarray, but by no means means that they won't join, and there is ongoing rocket fire and other exchanges of fire along the border. I think basically, and when I read all of the articles warning of this, and I share some of the conformed, of course, because I think they're right that that's what they want us to do. I don't think that they're, the critics are right when they say that we're walking into a trap because we're aware of what they would like to see happen. But there are really, to my way of thinking, three big options that Israel faces today. And that's it. And in point of fact, the first one isn't politically tenable. The first option is a bigger um, recurrence, a bigger replay of the previous rounds against Hamas, where we hit them hard, and this time desire will try to hit them much harder, but It's more of the same. We pull back after very, maybe we don't even go in big time on the ground. We just hit them very hard from the air or we go in a little. There is a certain logic to doing that, especially if they're afraid of getting bogged down in the two front war. I don't think the Israeli public can possibly accept that today. And so to a certain extent, I think we're left with one of two options. And of the two, again, I think that one is no longer sufficient the next level of escalation is to go up and try to destroy all the rockets and the tunnels. And this is uh, weeks and months of bloody hand-to-hand uh, fighting the worst kind that there is for all for all concerned. And of course, I'm particularly concerned of the cost for ourselves. The third level is to go in and to try and topple Hamas. And it's to do number two, of course, to destroy the rockets and tunnels. And by they have hundreds of miles of tunnels. In addition to, they're probably left with something like twenty thousand rockets at this point. Incredibly difficult operation. But then to add to that, toppling Hamas. And then the really big question is, who replaces Hamas? Is it the PA, which has never been very effective in the West Bank? How do they? How are they reinstated? And we can't do it because then they appear to be collaborators. Is it some Gazan strongman? Is I don't know, some other international uh appointee? And if you can reinstate whoever it is, and that's already a tall order, how do you keep this guy in power? Because at best there will be remnants of Hamas and PIJ, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, who will be trying to kill him. And I don't see pretty much anyone in the world volunteering to send forces who what will not be a keep peacing force, but a peacemaking, a peace uh, Um, imposing force. So the end game here is quite unclear to me, or at least I think I know what the end game is, because I think the government committed to this, destroying Hamas as a military organization, toppling them as a governing authority. How we go from there to a end that does not leave us in Gaza long term, which I think would be a horror, uh, that I don't know. Let me say two other things quickly. One is, of course, talking about the danger of escalation, which has already come up. And and Hezbollah has a totally different ballgame. Their capabilities are, they'll start off with about five times the rocket capability that Hamas and PIJ started with, but they also have precision rockets and it's a whole different ballgame. And the other thing that you, that you mentioned is uh, the Biden and Sunak visits First of all, I think the U.S. and the U.K., but well, the U.S. has responded remarkably. I don't think we could possibly want more from President Biden. He has responded on the military level, sending two aircraft carriers to deter Hezbollah and Iran from getting involved. He sent the first carrier on the first day. The U.S. doesn't usually make decisions like that that quickly. I think he understood from the first second the danger of this thing escalating and exploding. And of course, the arms shipments to Israel and the intelligence sharing, etc. cetera. Uh, diplomatically, the US has blocked one or maybe already two resolutions in the Security Council vetoed them. Uh, there was a week ago, there was a decision of five leaders, President Biden uh, and the heads of France, Britain, uh, and Italy and Germany, I was missing one. And today there was a, a new resolution by the G7, And he's, of course, uh, agreed to uh, speed up uh, dramatic aid to Israel. So I don't think we could possibly ask more from President Biden. And I must say the British response has been, uh, I think, surprisingly supportive. Um, Foreign Minister Cleverley, who was in Israel, just came back with the prime minister, and the prime minister has been very supportive. Um, He didn't come out as definitively as Biden did yesterday about who was responsible for the Uh, attack on the hospital. But I imagine that when they get a little more intelligence, the UK will come out um, very clearly also. And he's also sent uh, warships, I believe, to, to the eastern Mediterranean and is cooperating with Israel, military cooperation. In general, I think the international response has been way above what we could have expected. But of course, we know that now as the pictures from Gaza start getting uglier, and they will, that will begin, it's already begun to change.
1: Yakov, militarily, militarily, there is a focus on the northern Gaza Strip and specifically in the context of a ground incursion. Explain to us why it is that the Israel Defense Forces, in another display of high morality and another display of its incredible moral code, why is it that the IDF is calling for citizens of the Gaza Strip to move southward. What do they intend to do in the north
2: of the Strip and why focus there? Okay, so I'll just start by saying, I of course have no knowledge of any IDF operation plans and everything I'm saying is based on my own uh, assessments. I think it's important at this sensitive time to make that clear. And I don't know where the ground offensive will start, and where it will go. What we know f- uh, for a fact is that the IDF has begun a staged evacuation process focusing on northern Gaza and Gaza City um, because it appears to have identified uh, the centers of gravity of the Hamas war machine in those areas. And Hamas, being the terrorist army that it is, and following the same doctrine that Hezbollah follows um, of surrounding itself with mass human shielding and building its military offensive and terrorist capabilities in the heart of civilian areas, Um, is really counting on those shields uh, to make it more difficult for Israel to apply its own offensive capabilities against those targets, whether it's from the air or uh, from the ground uh, in the coming future. Um, And in order to strip away that layer of human shielding, uh, the IDF has called for um, approximately a million people living in these areas to move south, has set up two safe corridors for those places, um, has um, begun uh, negotiations for allowing humanitarian aid to come in through Rafah Rafa from Egypt. Um, and it's essentially uh, doing everything it can to strip away this layer of human shields so that it has a clearer view uh, into uh, uh, the, the targets that it wants to hit. Um, and these could be targets that are above ground uh, in these multi-story buildings. They could be targets that are at the surface level, and they could be underground um, in bunkers and tunnels, and any ground forces going in um, are really going to have to be lo- looking at a 360-degree threat uh, assessment because these threats could be coming from uh, any direction, from above, from, from at eye level and from below. These multi-story buildings are, are, are firing and lookout and command and control uh, positions. Um, from beneath, uh, there are interconnected tunnels, as, as Chuck said, uh, hundreds of uh, miles of, of these tunnels through which fighters and weapons move around uh, away from, from the site of the Israeli Air Force. And hopefully those tunnels will become death traps for, for these terrorists. Um, and it's, you know, it's going to be this kind of urban warfare. And, you know, if, if we look back at uh, Operation Defensive Shield in 2002, um, which in many ways was, uh, you know, a big challenge, but less of a challenge than this, um, that, you know, that actually took three years to complete. And I'm not saying that this is the time frame we're looking at here, but that's how long it takes to actually properly cleanse a sizable area of, of this level of terrorist activity. Um, and many of these cells are decentralized, so even though they listen to the commands of, of their senior leadership, they can also function independently and they can continue fighting for a very long time. Um, so that's, those are the kinds of, uh, I think, challenges uh, that we're looking at, and, and these are the reasons why the IDF wants to get as many civilians as possible away from this combat zone. Thank you, Yakov. I have an
1: issue with several statements that are coming from the American administration at this time. First of all, I want to say that I completely agree with Chuck in terms of his description of President Biden's visit. One could not hope for a more supportive message to come from the President of the United States. One could not hope it certainly would not be justified in presuming that a president of the United States would travel to the States of Israel to stand by the Israeli people and policymakers at a time of war. One could not presume that the messaging by President Biden would be as human and as personalized as it was, speaking directly to the Israeli people, telling the Israeli Israeli people that he was proud to be here in the state of Israel, talking to the families of the victims, talking to the families whose relatives have been taken hostage into the Gaza Strip, incidentally doing so, even as Prime Minister Netanyahu failed to do so in the very same press conference and briefing to the public. But there is a recurring claim with which I take issue, that suggests that Hamas does not represent the legitimate goals and the opinions and perspectives of the Palestinian Arabs inside the Gaza Strip. And that is not a true claim. The reality of the matter is that Hamas enjoys popularity, greater popularity, than the Palestinian Authority inside the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, the reality of the matter is that Hamas were elected by the Palestinians inside the Gaza Strip. And the fact of the matter is that they enjoy that support, Hamas, from a people, not all the people, but clearly a majority of people somewhere along the line, who knew damn well that within Hamas's equivalent of a constitution is the overt, repeated call for the murder of Jews, wherever they may be for the murder of Jews as a holy pursuit. And Chuck, with that understanding and with the plea not to deal in the soft bigotry of low expectations when it comes to the Palestinians and to not go along with the idea that they have no agency whatsoever in the actions of their government, of their regime. I want to ask you this, how responsible do you feel the, the citizens of the Gaza Strip are for the atrocities wrought against the Jewish people in Israel at the hands of Hamas? Are they completely blameless? Are they prisoners of a regime? Is it somewhere in between? And how concerned should we be for them, given that our citizens, our people, are, quite frankly, in many cases, absolutely broken, have families torn asunder, people murdered and massacred, Where should our concern be? Who are we most responsible for as we move forward? Is it for our citizens, the call of our citizens to rid the Gaza Strip of Hamas? Or is it towards the Palestinian citizens? Is it a combination? And how do we navigate that?
0: Well, first of all, I'm concerned by that part of the American response as well. And I would add to that the repeated calls to Israel to observe international law, the laws of armed conflict. To avoid unnecessary civilian deaths. Uh, look, we, we can't expect a total one hundred percent convergence of a, of uh, positions and statements with the global superpower. Of course, President Biden, aside from what he may actually very much believe, he's also playing to different audiences. And after after coming out so extraordinarily strongly for Israel, he has to say something because there is a Uh, increasingly strong Muslim community in the United States and an increasingly strong pro-Palestinian community. And let's remember that, Justin, I believe it was June, but I could be off by a month or so. Uh, Maybe it was a little earlier. There was the first time ever there was a poll that showed a majority of Democrats now support the Palestinians, not Israel. And even in the overwhelmingly supportive polls that we've seen since uh, October 7th, in which the American public as a whole, is, it's like 70% for Israel uh, and only a few percent for the Palestinians, but still among young Democrats, 38 and under, the Palestinians still have more support, even after the horrors of what happened. So the president has to take, I guess at least minimally balancing, it's not even balancing, he has to say something for the benefit of those constituencies. Look, this is... um the worst atrocity in Israel's history. The first time since the war of independence that Israeli towns and villages in Kibbutzim were overrun, uh, occupied briefly, thank God, and the uh, people slaughtered in the most wanton and most heinous way imaginable, and I will avoid getting too graphic here. We cannot allow this to happen, full stop, or at least not to happen again. And we have to make it very clear to our enemies that this can never happen again. And so I think we're going to, for lack of choice, we are going to be forced into taking measures that we don't normally like to take. And in some cases, we're going to have to compromise a little bit with our morality. And warfare at its best is, uh, is horrible. The ugliest kind of human behavior there is. But we're going to have to do it because there are just wars, and this is certainly one of them. At the same time, we, uh, I think just we owe it to ourselves about who we are to take whatever care we can to minimize civilian casualties. That's who we are as a people. And if I put morality aside, there's also just a utilitarian aspect to it, which is that if we want to maintain American, especially an international support, then we have to do it, like it or not. I thought that the initial announcement of the full siege, a military siege, fine. But a siege on water, or food, or medicine, that was a mistake. We should have initiated that from the first moment. We're pushing a million people out of the north, of northern Gaza. I mean, that's a pretty extreme move. I'm all for doing it, but at the same time, we should be the ones initiating the civilian, the humanitarian care.
1: Okay, so Yakov, let's come back to something something directly related to the military. I believe to to leap off from where Chuck left. I believe that this is a direct consequence of the years-long, possibly even decades-long, over-intellectualization of the nature of our enemy at the top level of the defense establishment and the political establishment. For years, and Chuck, you and I have been collaborating for quite a while, Yaakov and I have been debating and discussing policy here in Israel for longer. For years, I have been saying, that we are not sufficiently focused on the horrors that await from the Gaza Strip, that we are constantly downplaying, and both of you can attest to the veracity of what I'm saying, that we are constantly downplaying the threat from the Gaza Strip. We are constantly dismissing it as a non-strategic threat, and I believed it to be a strategic threat, and unfortunately, I think I've been proven right. Let's talk about another strategic threat. The fact of the matter is that... Hezbollah has close to some estimate 150,000, others 200,000 munitions aimed at the States of Israel. Chuck expressed that earlier on in this webinar. I received a briefing by Major General Noam Tibon, who has been in the headlines of late for acts of tremendous heroism, specifically saving his son, daughter-in-law and two granddaughters who were living in Nahaloz We should know that they're personal friends of ours, that family, personal friends of the Miriam Institute, personal friends of ours as well. And when I was briefed by General Tibon several years ago, he expressed that if Hezbollah were to open a front, the IDF estimates are that they would fire on us at a rate of 2,200 rockets per day. 2,200 rockets per day. It's for that reason, but not for that reason alone, Yaakov, that I say now is the time for the states of Israel and the Israel Defense Forces to take out a decisive first strike, to take a decisive first strike, not a preemptive strike, because the element of surprise has gone, as I said at the top, we're already in a conflict with Hezbollah, but a decisive first strike against the munitions of Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. What are we waiting for? Why expose our people to the possibility that a greater horror will continue to await us from the north? Why do we continue to place our people in this impossible situation where they carry an anxiety about whether or not a much more potent enemy is about to weigh in? Why do we not do that, which is blindingly obvious, but perhaps another example of something being overly intellectualized, and go and destroy these rocket launching sites inside southern Lebanon right
2: now? By the way, that estimate has now gone up to, uh, they can probably fire up to 4,000 a day. Um, Look, we have uh, been caught by surprise uh, in the South, and the idea of strategic focus now is the Gaza Strip. Now, it's obvious that Hezbollah is currently, in a very calculated manner, um, escalating the situation in the north, and it is willing to risk a further deterioration, and it is, could well be trying to drag us into that. Now, because this war has already begun under conditions that are extremely far from being the conditions that the defense establishment would have liked to enter a war into, um, there is a balancing act that is occurring here, um, and that balancing act is is basically based on the logic of let's see how long we can keep the northern front relatively stable on a low flame and focus most of the resources on the south. And Hezbollah wants exactly the opposite. Hezbollah wants for the IDF to divert as many resources as it can away from Gaza. So it's not only an act of solidarity with Hamas. This is an actual operational distraction. Um, um, move, which could well deteriorate into a war, that first strike, and, and by that I assume that you're referring to a large major strike on Hezbollah's um, arsenal of of rockets, missiles, and precision-guided missiles, and it's those PGMs that pose the biggest threat to our national security, the biggest conventional threat, in my view. Um, that may well happen, and it may not happen. We don't know. Obviously, the option exists. It's in the hands of the decision-makers, and I'm sure that they have a certain threshold where they will Decide or not decide to take that decision. But as we speak, the strategic priority of the IDF is the Gaza Strip. And if they get their way, they're going to keep that balance as it is, that the lion's share of intelligence, ground forces, air power, all the things that the IDF is bringing to bear on the Gaza Strip will be prioritized there, and a very sizable force will be kept ready Uh, for responding uh, to the northern arena. Um, And, you know, because neither side has an element of surprise, I also don't know what the value, the operational value, would be necessarily of a first large-scale strike. Now, all of the Hezbollah operatives are in their bunkers and tunnels, so we wouldn't achieve a huge amount of casualties because they're ready. Um, Certainly, uh, I think that, you know, the option of striking those missiles and rockets um, that are threatening the whole of Israel um, is absolutely on the table. It's something that I think, you know, is going to be looked at continuously throughout the war. Every, every side here has its finger on the trigger. I mean, and I think, you know, we're all going to need nerves of steel and also provide, despite, you know, this breakdown in trust, we have to assume that the decision makers have the latest intelligence assessments and that there's a reason why they're continuing to prioritize the Gaza Strip um, over uh, escalating the northern arena to the maximum level. Um. So, you know, to summarize, I'm not saying that it's not going to happen, but as of now, Israel's interest appears to be, because of the way this war began, is to continue to prioritize the war on Hamas to the extent that that is possible.
1: Thank you, Yakov. I, I want to just be on the record as saying that I firmly hope that a first strike will be launched against Hezbollah's capabilities. I think that this idea of as trying to manage a low-level conflict, relatively low-level conflict, that is a type of communication for our listeners, by the way. And, Chuck, you can speak about this more, this idea of targeting across the border, each side with their fingers on the trigger, Yakov, as you said, and indeed pulling the trigger in certain cases, but really only hitting military installations and personnel, not targeting civilians at this time, that can all escalate. That can all escalate by way of one misinterpretation on the part of the other. That can all escalate by one overuse of one's hand, overplaying of one's hand, and nobody need lecture me about this because those are precisely the circumstances that came about prior to the events of the Second Lebanon War of two thousand six, the war in which the first war in which I served. So this idea of managing and mismanaging, I think, is a very very dangerous game. But I think a much more dangerous game is leaving this absolutely vicious, vicious terrorist organization in southern Lebanon armed to the teeth with its stated intention of wiping the state of Israel off the map. I think that we must strike there first. It's my view. I think it's important that people understand that there are different viewpoints here. And I would like to ask you, Chuck, to come back at something that Yaakov said, which is leadership and the decision-making here in the States of Israel. So let me just, again, as though, I, as though I'm not being candid and clear enough already on this webinar, let me again just, just state, we have Prime Minister Netanyahu, who, in my opinion, will be remembered in infamy for this cataclysmic, appalling, appalling failure to secure the citizens of the State of Israel. He is still the prime minister. We have this unity cabinet, unity government now, and we have this war cabinet, which includes two former chiefs of staff, one of whom is also a former minister of defense, that being Benny Gantz, and of course, Gadi Eisenkot, who was also a chief of staff here in the Israel Defense Forces. These three have worked together on several times, on several occasions in the past, including with a focus on the Gaza Strip, and they have never dealt with this issue. Can we really expect them to make a different calculus now that is closer aligned to the stated goal of toppling Hamas? Or are we going to see what you alluded to, Chuck, which is a slightly widened version of previous ground incursions into the Gaza Strip, which, quite frankly, did nothing other than leave Hamas the opportunity to rearm and revisit their harm towards Israeli citizens once every couple of years?
0: First of all, just to make it clear, uh, my best assessment is that the decision will be for a massive campaign to destroy Hamas militarily and to topple them as a governing body. I was trying to portray what I think mm-hmm. the range of options are and what I think is politically viable. You were talking about the need for a first and decisive strike against Hezbollah in Lebanon. No one would like to see that, at least the decisive part, more than I would. To my great regret, I've been working the Hezbollah issue for a long time now. None of the rounds against them, and there have been a number since the early 90s, actually since the 80s, have ended uh, successfully. And we are not, we we would not be starting here from uh, the most uh, propitious circumstances. We may have to do it. And you may be right in your analysis, maybe this should have been done a long time ago, but now a two-front war, if we can avoid it, I think we should pretty much, uh, not at all circumstances, at all costs, but to be reasonable uh, to the extent that we can. And if we decide that we want to do it, then it should be when we've finished the primary stage against Hamas, not to fight a two-front war, okay? we can't We can't really fight a two-front war effectively offensively, to the best of my understanding, what we can do is fight one front offensively and hold on the other. Um, hopefully I'm wrong about that, but I think that's that's at least my assessment. There's no doubt that it's more conducive, it's more effective to do one at a time, to do them consecutively. I, I wanna point out, we'll get I think we all are going to be reconsidering a lot of our pre-war beliefs. I've, as you know, I've said in umpteen uh, webinars that we've done, I never believed in left and right. I thought that was a totally passe approach or hawk and dove approach, certainly for Israel that issues were too complicated, and you can be dovish on one and hawk and hawkish on another, and you can be hawk, hawkish and dovish at the same time on the same issue. At least in that, I am, my belief is further strengthened. There are other areas where I'm, I have already started fundamentally questioning some of the things that I believed in over the years, uh, such as the fact that uh, we should have exercised restraint uh, towards Hamas and Hezbollah over, over time. That's actually something that I've been debating with myself for years. But if I had internal qualms that I was mistaken in the past, they've certainly grown stronger now. Part of the failure, though...
1: Sorry, but, Chuck, I just wanted to, to ask you to clarify. I'm not sure I followed. You're saying that, just just in, in your own words, are, are you saying that you feel you were mistaken for, the idea, for suggesting that we should show restraint, or are you saying that you were mistaken for pushing the idea that we ought not to show restraint? Which yeah. one, just to be clear?
0: Well, restraint. When I was in the NSC, for example, I had the Lebanon file from 2000 to 2006, and it was already, there was a huge escalation uh, in terms of an arms buildup, a rocket buildup on their part. And we all saw it and we all thought that it might blow eventually or probably would blow eventually. And I still thought that we were too busy with the MP5 and other things put it off. And also a war that you put off may may never happen. I had my qualms at the time, I had qualms on, not just for years until a week ago whether I was right about that, or maybe I was very, very wrong. And the doubts are even greater this week.
1: Well, I just just want to, before you you come to your next point, I just want to to say to our viewers and, and our listeners, that I really applaud you being so candid. This is the second time in as many webinars that you've expressed that you were mistaken with your positions in the past. And I think that it's so important that individuals be led by the facts by the circumstances and not by this populist inclination towards becoming more and more entrenched in their opinions regardless uh, of the events of the day and can actually turn around and say that they were mistaken or they may have been mistaken and 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 still be welcomed on a platform so i just want to thank you for being that that open and honest with us chuck carry on with your next points if, if you would
0: Thank you, but the issues are, they are too important for us to start uh, digging our heels in. And of course, some people will do so. Look, part of the failure here, and again, we're all going to have to rethink a lot of things. Part of it wasn't a failure in strategy or concept. It was simply a failure in execution. The intelligence core, the operational components of the IDF failed abysmally. Had they not done so, the pre-war strategy might have worked quite nicely. So we also, in redoing our or in rethinking our positions when the war is over, we also have to take that into account. Not everything was mistaken. And the last point is the issue of leadership that you raised. It's no secret to any of our listeners that I thought that Mr. Netanyahu was a corrupt, and um, I don't even know what terms to use, a fundamentally unsuited prime minister long before the war broke out, that a prime minister with three judicial, with three uh, indictments, cannot serve as prime minister, even if the man is proven innocent innocent at the end. You cannot be prime minister with their three indictments when you're on trial, when everything you do is about self-preservation, And of course, an issue that we disagreed about in the past, I still believe that his primary motivations since coming back into office and the primary motivation for the judicial reform was to save his own neck. So personally, my regard for his leadership beforehand wasn't uh, very high, you know that. And by the way, the man also has some major achievements to his name, but he'll be remembered for that, whether it was the Abraham Accords, whether it was Israel's cyber revolution, he did manage to do some good things in his years in office. But I believe that the colossal military failure here, which is at least partly because of the judicial reform uh, process, because the government had, it it simply was not functioning. And it certainly wasn't looking at the real issues, Hamas, Iran. The Iranian issue almost disappeared from the national agenda. And the IDF was spending all of its time just trying to hold itself together, not to come apart at the seams. And it is remarkable how in just a few months, you can take one of the world's better military institutions, defense establishments, and tear it apart at the seams. So between that and now the colossal failure, which unfortunately proved us right at least about that, or yeah, proved me right about that. Uh, Mr. Netanyahu has to go, he has to go very, very rapidly. I don't think this is the time to, as the expression goes, to change horses in mid-war neither the political or the military echelon, um, you could replace one or two generals. I certainly wouldn't be changing the whole IDF of command at this point. Uh, that would be such an expression of lack of confidence, the impact on public morale, even if it's good for command and I'm not sure it's good for command. But I think we should wait and then we're going to have to make a lot of changes when it's over.
1: So, Jakob, I'm going to come to you in just a moment, but, but Chuck, just in quick response, surely, even with the lack of conclusive outcome in previous engagements and conflicts with Hezbollah, surely, just in terms of basic logic, it makes most sense, most sense to defang them of their munitions, of their rocket and missile capabilities, so that in the event that we clash with them, soldier to terrorist, in the event that we do so, we do so with a far more diluted version of them. I I cannot see any rationale whatsoever, quite frankly, for doing anything other than what the Israeli Air Force has been boasting about its ability to do now since 2006, which is to, in their words, bomb Hezbollah and southern Lebanon back into the Stone Age. I mean, this is something, this is not my statement. This is sta- These are statements that you know have come from, again, senior ranks in the defense establishment, specifically from those associated with the Israeli Air Force. If we've got that capability, if it's not all blaster, then I think it is basic, basic rationale and basic good sense, quite frankly, to remove that enemy or at least downgrade that enemy significantly so that we can indeed focus on what we need to do over there inside the Gaza Strip. Now, Yakov, I, I, I want to come to you about something, and I want to dig in a little bit more about the leadership here. You are a min- military analyst. I never thought that Benny Gantz was any use whatsoever as the chief of staff. I felt that he was particularly poor and weak and indecisive. I thought that he gave a very poor showing during Operation Protective Edge in 2014. I don't think that he's a particularly potent politician. I don't know what it is that he stands for. It seems to me that he stands for anything except Bibi Netanyahu. I do applaud him for maintaining civility and seeking to be unified, but I don't know, frankly, what what his policy positions are. I don't think anybody knows what they are. I don't want you to address that. I want you to address... The suitability of these individuals to prosecute now this war as members of this newly formed war cabinet, which includes Prime Minister Netanyahu, Minister of Defense Yoav Gallant, who's a little bit of an unknown entity at this level, right? Unlike unlike uh, uh, Benny Gantz, who we've seen as Defense Minister, Gallant is is really quite new to the position. Certainly a qualified a qualified incumbent, but new to the position. You have Prime Minister Netanyahu, Yoav Gallant. Benny Gantz, Gaddy Eisenkort there. Do you think that these individuals are, are the right individuals to prosecute this war in a different, a new way? Or do you think that the order of the day is to do so in a manner with which we're already all too familiar?
2: I think it very much depends on the speed with which they will be able to learn and draw the necessary lessons going forward. Look, surprise in war, devastating surprise is actually something that has happened all over the world and throughout centuries of warfare. And whole books have been written about it, how to recover from surprise. And and we have many examples, even recent examples, you know, even in, in World War II, uh, you know, when when the British started on the back foot in Dunkirk, there, there are so many examples of, of devastating surprises that have created uh, incredible shockwaves and mental shocks. And then the speed of the recovery very much depends on the speed of the learning curve. And I think that, you know, if the appropriate lessons are drawn in real time as we move forward, and those lessons are that, yes, uh, uh, Hamas has to be destroyed as a physical entity. And I repeat as a physical entity because I don't think it can be destroyed as an idea. Hamas, the idea, is going to live after this war. But the way it expresses itself and the way it comes to fruition physically will be very much up to us. So what I mean by that is we have to have a long-term strategy For preventing, not only destroying the capabilities of Hamas, but also ensuring that those capabilities are are not rebuilt. Um, Because for me, one of the main lessons going forward is that this idea that Islamist jihadist entities, once they control territories, will be able to be managed, will be able to be deterred, uh, will have interests that will conflict with their uh, genocidal ideologies. Um, All of that, I think, needs to be thrown away. And we now no longer need to have these dilemmas about their intentions. Uh, we need to always assume um, that they simply cannot have any capabilities. They cannot control territory on Israel's borders. And the test for that will, will happen quite soon. Because once the Gaza ground operation will end, if the IDF does not begin a systematic mowing of the lawn, and this can take you know, many different uh, forms. I don't know whether the raids would come from within Israel or whether for military bases in certain areas in the Gaza Strip, I don't know about that, and it might be too soon. But if there's not a mowing of the lawn that follows this operation this war uh, paradigm shift, um, then we will have, have Hamas rebuilding its capabilities in the Gaza Strip. So that, I think, is the first lesson. How fast will they be able to break out of the paradigm and understand that the thing that matters here when we're dealing with Islamist jihadist entities is their capabilities. And we have to stop trying to guess at their intentions. That's, I think, that's really the main thing that we need to keep in mind going forward. That has also everything to do with Hezbollah. I think you know the idea that Hezbollah is deterred. We can throw that idea out as well. That doesn't mean that they want to run to war tomorrow. They have their own cost-benefit um, uh, analysis, and they do that with the Iranians on an ongoing basis. They're also supposed to uh, have a role to deter us from striking. Uh, the Iranian nuclear program so there's all kinds of calculations but Hezbollah is not deterred by war with Israel that mm-hmm. has actually been clear for months um, and we need to understand that we have no deterrence over uh, these adversaries they do not care about their people and what they what they gamble on when they when they create these escalations what they gamble on is taking over the ruins they are playing the long game and they think in terms of decades and I think this is one of the biggest mistakes we have all made. Um, as Westerners, as Western strategists, we have projected our thinking onto these Islamist adversaries, and they simply do not think in this way. They measure their achievements in decades, they want to take over ruins, they think that they can win the long game and that their their brand will reign supreme even if it brings total destruction in the short term. And so I think that you know, if Hamas is destroyed and a, a long-term program, is set into place for denying them the ability, much like the the grass is mown in the West Bank. You know, what would the West Bank look like? And I'm saying this with no political baggage, really just from a security perspective, what would the West Bank look like if the IDF didn't go in there and mow the lawn every night? We would have a second Hamas terrorist army there. So I think, you know, those are the main lessons. And and if this cabinet is able to internalize those quickly, then I think uh, we're going to win and win decisively. Um, and then the great reckoning uh, will come an hour after this war ends. Okay, thank
1: you. So I, I just want to take two more questions, and then and then I'm going to weave in a couple of points from the audience that who have submitted it in writing. But Chuck, on on the back of what I mentioned, this new war cabinet that's developed with the, with with Gants and Eisenhower as part of it. There's also been this side cabinet that's been established which includes Yossi Cohen and Yaakov Amidro and there is a third individual, it may be Giora Island, I may be mistaken about that, but it's a side cabinet that's a a loose description of it and they have been tasked specifically, Yossi Cohen, former head of the Mossad of course, somebody known to our organization with whom we've worked, some people think a future prime minister of Israel, time will tell, who knows, but but no fool and and an individual who is synonymous with one of the most daring mossad operations known in the public sphere the raid on the nuclear archive inside tehran this group this side cabinet has been charged with coming up with a different way of thinking militarily almost red teaming anything that may be standard fare within the israel defense forces or indeed within The war cabinet. Can you tell us anything about this side cabinet and does it breed confidence within you?
0: Well, actually, it does. Because, first of all, the more thinking that you have going on before a major undertaking like this, the better. But it would be nice to think that there might be some alternative to a head on ground invasion of uh, Gaza. Because obviously, uh, we've been talking about it openly. you don't have to be a great military expert to, to understand that that's, in the end, the primary option. But that's going exactly into uh, what they've prepared for and maybe what they're really trying to draw us into. And the reasons I said before, they're, they're hoping we'll bog down. So if there's any alternative to doing this, that would be great. And to have people like uh, Yoshi Kuhn and Gira Island, who is a original military thinker, um, to have people like that doing this, I think, is a comforting, uh, a comforting thought, and maybe they will come up with things that uh, the IDF itself doesn't. But I, I'd like to add one or two things to what you' we were saying. Um, first of all, Yaakov uh, was speaking about the learning curve, and the learning curve for the political echelon. I wouldn't too much confidence in the political echelon doing it but the IDF yes one of the IDF strengths is its ability to to rethink things very carefully very rapidly and in depth and to learn from its mistakes um, so I think there we can be we can be a little bit assured we have to go back uh, Yaku was talking about intentions that uh, we can't afford just to base our estimates, uh, intelligence assessments on intentions. It brings us back to the classic discussion of do you put your emphasis on assessments or on capabilities? And the problem with going on capabilities is that then you may have to be on alert all the time. It, it's ruinous financially, uh, operationally. And so in the end, after the Yom Kippur War, one of the conclusions was we have to change the emphasis on capabilities, And after a couple of years that changed because it just wasn't tenable financially or operationally. And the last point I'd make here is I I think we have a consensus here, I'll certainly speak for myself, that this uh, operation must end with a fundamental change in the situation on the ground and that really means eliminating Hamas as a uh, military and governing authority. And of course, Yaakov is is completely correct. You can't kill every last Hamasnik, and you can't destroy the ideology. But they can no longer govern uh, Gaza and they cannot remain a functioning, coherent military organization. I think we have no choice but to do that. But let's temper our recommendation here. With the awareness that, that we are talking about the lives, at best, I think of a few hundred, uh, a few hundred guys, and maybe more. And that is a very. Are you, are
1: you referring to the to the soldiers of the idea?
0: The IDF soldiers that we're going to lose, and that doesn't include wounded, and it doesn't include, of course, uh, rocket fire and other things. And terrorism will increase in the course of the if I mean, if that's possible, it will increase further during the ground operation, and that's not even taken into account the potential Hezbollah and Iranian responses. So we have to be very, very careful and sober about what we're recommending here. A lot of people's lives are at stake here. And of course, the ultimate decision that I think we've, consideration that I think we all share is that, okay, this is one of those moments in history where you have no choice. Um, One of the reasons that I, all the years, was advocating restraint wasn't because I didn't think that we shouldn't have hit them as hard as we possibly could, not because I didn't want to do it, because I thought at the time that the cost in lives would exceed the magnitude of the threat. That's no longer the case. The magnitude of the threat today justifies it, requires it.
1: So uh, we're going to try and finish within the next 10 minutes here. Uh, That's approximately 10 minutes. There's one very, very heavy point that we have to discuss, the hostages. What is the fate, in your opinion, Chuck, I'll start with you, of these hostages? We are in completely uncharted territory here. We have never known anything like this before. Uh, Emmy Palmore, who was the legal advisor, I think, to the prime minister or to the Israeli government, had the Gilad Shalit file on her desk, and she just expressed that that was a daily and nightly task with which he had to wrestle just for Gilad Shalit, the soldier who was kidnapped in 2006 and returned by way of a prisoner swap some years later. We've got more than 200 hostages. How lined up is the State of Israel for an effective series of negotiations or scenarios in order to bring these hostages back? And... Is, in fact, the presence of these more than 200 hostages inside the Gaza Strip the reason for our hesitation as our troops mass on the border and we conjure with this impossible impossible dilemma?
0: Well, I think, and this gets back to a question that you asked in the beginning, which I actually didn't answer, is why have we postponed the ground operation? And one of the reasons is because I think we're trying to see if there's any way to do it, and... Um, secure the release, at least of most of the hostages. There's there's other reasons. I think the IDF wanted to do retraining, we couldn't do it until uh, Biden came and we coordinated with the US. There are a variety of reasons, but that was certainly one of them. Look, Hamas is going to play this. They are going to milk it for every drop of propaganda value that they can have parading uh, the hostages before cameras possibly torturing them, possibly executing them um, to do what they can to destroy Israel's public uh, resilience in the face of this. I think they misunderstand that when terrorists do things like that, they just steal the other side's resolve to get them even more. But they'll try to do that. And they may have some, I can't say that they won't have any success. I think you mentioned the Gilad uh, Shavit uh, case in which the prime minister traded over a thousand terrorists just to get him back. And I don't think that any state should allow itself to do that. We could agree to two for one, three to one, five for one, 10 to one, Uh, long before the Shavit case, I think we were already in the tens and hundreds for one. At least there are the tens, and then Netanyahu went to a thousand, and he set a precedent, which was a horrific mistake, both in and of itself, but because a significant number of the people released were conducting terrorism within short order, and some of the leaders of the current operation are precisely people under that deal. So I think we, we must and will do everything that we can to try and secure the release of the hostages, and. Let me just say, I do not believe that the state of Israel can allow itself to be held hostage, And I'll leave it at that.
1: Yaakov, yeah, 60 seconds on that subject, please, if you would.
2: Yeah, and, and one of the uh, 1,100 Palestinian terrorists released in uh, 2011 with the Shalit, Shalit deal was Yehi Sinwar, the head of uh, Hamas in Gaza today. So the disastrous consequence of that of that deal we're feeling very very sharply right now. Look, it's an impossible strategic dilemma. There are three basic options you know on the table that I can see. One is to um proceed with the ground offensive um and as things are, without any progress being made, and to attempt some sort of rescue operation as things move forward under almost impossible conditions. Uh, The other is to seek uh, international mediation. And the the third option is to directly negotiate with Hamas. Now, I think the third option is off the table. I don't see any, any way that Israel, when it declares that its objective is to destroy Hamas, is going to enter into negotiations with it. I am fairly confident that Israel has attempted to allow international mediators to try and secure some releases. I don't know if that's the Qataris or others, maybe Turkey, uh, we've seen no results of that so far, none whatsoever. I agree with Chuck. They're going to be milking every bit of this as much as they can. I think their their primary goal will be to try and slow down the momentum of the ground offensive through these negotiations by mediators. And I think Israel's going to be pretty determined not to let that happen. I
1: feel it very important that we be guided not just by our presence on the globe as a state for the jewish people but also as the jewish state informed by jewish principles and one of the uppermost jewish principles is the notion of pikuach nefesh of preserving one's life and i truly believe that if we fail to take out our most potent enemies Before they seek to do the very same to us, we are in violation of that principle. I think that we have unfortunately, tragically seen that take place on our southern flank with the Gaza Strip, and I think that we are unfortunately in danger of making the very same error on our northern flank with regard to Hezbollah. I don't think that that's what our teachings would have us do, show endless restraint, even as people announce that they are seeking our distraction to remain restrained to stay restrained, to turn away from the dangers that obviously face us. And I'm very hopeful as just one Israeli that the defense establishment will indeed target those capabilities, because whether they come at us now or later from Hezbollah, they are going to come at us. And I think that we have the opportunity to determine in what form that engagement comes about. The second thing is I personally believe that this has to has to bring about completely the end of this nonsensical, ridiculous idea that is the two-state solution. These are not people with whom we can have peace. These are not people who deserve a state. These are not people who we should cede land in order to provide a state for. These are not people who can share a fence with us as neighbours. These are people who need to be quite frankly, vanquished from the face of the earth. I'm talking about Hamas. These are not people who we can give an independent state to. And I'm very hopeful that when this engagement is concluded and when the guns fall silent, we might, might have the Palestinian Arabs located far away from us, inside the Sinai Peninsula, with a border with Egypt and a border somewhere far away from the borders of the States of Israel. And perhaps there, they can go and establish some sort of state that is not informed primarily by hatred, and a benighted policy philosophy, and dare I say, interpretation of their religion. And the final thing that I want to say is to the people here, if you are over in the United States, and you're wondering what you can do about this, there are two things concretely, one which will seem nebulous, but I can tell you that I truly believe in its potency and its power. First of all, you should donate to our work. We are supplying equipment to soldiers who are going to the front lines now. If you have already donated, donate more. If you have not yet donated, donate now. All of that will go to the soldiers. Those soldiers will be doing the work of the Jewish state, the Jewish people, and dare I say it, of Almighty God as they go forward. You can do that via our website at the donate button. The second thing that I would ask you to do is please pray for the future, the safety, and the security of Zion and the Jewish people. It is important that you focus your thoughts towards Israel. It is important that you count on that which you cannot always see, namely, a faith in a higher power when such massive odds stand before us. And if you are somebody who is in the habit of praying, Please intensify your focus. And if you're not in the habit of praying, perhaps consider doing so at this stage. We have to have that combination, a potent military force, which I believe we do have. I believe it is rising now. But I also believe that we have to have the backing, dare I say it, without being a particularly religious man, of a higher power that has guarded over Israel in the face of tremendous odds in the past. And I believe, and I can tell you it's what's sustaining me. That, that same power will guard over us now, today. And with that combination, in time, not in the coming hours, days, weeks, or even months, but in time, we might come to know the days of Shalom al Yisrael, of peace over Israel again. I want to thank you, Yaakov, and you, Chuck, for being with me. Thank you so much for the back and forth and the conversation. And thank you all for listening. And please, please keep us uppermost in your thoughts and in your prayers. We will know the days of peace again. I don't know when that will be, uh, but we certainly have no luxury of entertaining the idea of surrender, capitulation, or being run over by a people who would visit such harm upon us. One final thought, they acted like Nazis, Hamas, but the Jews are not the same Jews as were during the events of the Holocaust. These Jews can fight and fight they will, and prevail, they will. Thank you very much, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the IDDF podcast, a product of the Miriam Institute, Israel's future in Israel's hands. Don't forget to visit our website at www.miriaminstitute.org to learn more about our work. And please do take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and to leave a rating and review and wherever it is that you download your podcasts from. Until next time, it's over and out from IDDF Podcast.